The topic of our demo talk this evening is going to be neutrality and composure in the context of the knowledge of equanimity about certain affirmations with a short excursion into patience. And certainly this talk is certainly meant certainly for specifically for some of our meditators certainly here and certainly for the others it certainly will contain many important certain points that might certainly help for a general understanding and how the equanimity might certainly help in the course of the meditation practice now when you know, practicing inside certain meditation for quite some time, then you know, one is likely to traverse a number of different insight knowledges, and sooner or later one will, you know, having passed uh, you know, this aspect of uh, you know, knowledge or contemplation of destruction, as we discussed yesterday, so having passed that, you know, sooner or later one is certainly going to you know, end up in the knowledge of equanimity about certain information. And that particular insight knowledge is certain defined, at least defined in two places, possibly even more places. And number one, in the Visuddhimagga, the path of purification, it's fourth chapter, paragraph 161. And it's also defined in the Patisambhidamagga, the path of discrimination. Now, in the Visuddhimagga, the path of purification, the definition for this particular insight knowledge is as follows, namely, equanimity bound formations is a name for equanimity consisting in neutrality. And certainly that's why the emphasis will be on neutrality. Neutrality about certain understanding reobservation and composure regarding the hindrances, etc. And then in the path of discrimination, it's first treatise, section or paragraph 306 to 330, we find a slightly different definition, namely as follows. Inside knowledge of desire for deliverance, knowledge of reflection or reobservation, and of composure is knowledge of equanimity about formations. So what we have here, you know, three items make up that certain knowledge of equanimity about formations. One, for one thing, desire for deliverance, then the reobservation and composure. Now, in both of these two definitions, the term composure comes up. And in the Visuddhimagga definition, well, neutrality is also mentioned.
Now, since those two terms are part of our definitions here of the knowledge of equanimity bond formations, one might as well take a closer look at them. And the Pali term, maybe before we do this, the Pali term Sankopika Jnana has, can be broken up into several parts. Jnana is your insight knowledge. Sankara are your condition formations, so formations that are conditioned by impermanence, by unsatisfactoriness, and by an absence of the self. And so it's the knowledge of equanimity about certain conditioned formations. Now, the classical fourfold definition of of neutrality of mind in the Pani scriptural language known as Tadramajatata, literally meaning there in the middleness, so that certain definition is as certain follows, namely, its characteristic is that of conveying consciousness and mental factors evenly. Samavahita Lakana in the Pali scriptural language. And there are two functions to this certain particular mental state, the first one being to prevent certain deficiency and excess, and certainly the second one, and which is related, to prevent partiality. And so, neutrality you know, then is, manif- or, yeah, is manifested as neutrality. The Venerable Nisadupandita you know, says it's a state of ease and balance. It keeps the proper middle. Now, this particular mental state is certainly being compared to a charioteer of you know, who's driving a chariot and who looks on with equanimity on two thoroughbreds, so two horses which are progressing evenly along the roadway. And since you know, they are of equal strength and they're progressing evenly, the charioteer has an uh, easy job because um, they're not pulling in at different speeds and strength. Now, this neutrality of mind should not be confused with indifference, which is certainly the near enemy, it's near enemy, and certainly that indifference is due to ignorance. Now, when it comes to neutrality of mind, then 
it's with regard to a human being, this means that suddenly you do not throw a person out of your heart, but rather if, let's say, conditions are unfavorable, then you just wait for a little while, and suddenly then sooner or later, the person will understand better, situation might change, and and you'll give full attention to the person again. Whereas indifference would be saying, okay, sorry, I've suffered, and I'm not going to deal with this person anymore. So that would be throwing the person out of your heart. And this certain mental state of neutrality, as we've seen, is characterized by conveying consciousness and the mental factors evenly. So the mind, prior to this, is certain oftentimes pretty unbalanced. So sometimes faith is predominant, as we've seen. Sometimes wisdom is predominant, or, or the intellect, the cunningness is predominant. At certain other times, effort might be predominant. At other times, again, concentration might be predominant. And so many imbalances might certainly occur. However, when with some practice, all of this changes, and when equanimity is quite certainly predominant, then the mental, the corresponding mental factors will be well distributed. And that then also manifests physically as a balanced and certainly very centered posture, both in the sitting as well as in the walking meditation. Now, since you know, the term composure is part of the Visuddhimagga definition for the knowledge of equanimity, why we might as well you know, take a closer look at it. And certainly it is a term that oftentimes doesn't get explained and certainly that is at first you know, maybe you know, somewhat difficult to relate to. Now, sometimes looking at its opposite might certainly help for a better understanding. So the opposite would be a lack of composure. And certainly, so what do you think, what would be symptoms of a lack of composure? A meditator who is lacking composure would display which symptoms? Disturbed. Will be disturbed and what else? Restless. Uh, restless. Yes, you could say this. Anything else? Impatient. Uh, then will be impatient. Yes, something you could say this. Yes. Agitated. Agitated. Yes. Okay. And certainly, uh, there's still a number of other aspects, such as straining. So, mm-hmm. you know, trying to force certainly uh, the practice, clenching one's teeth, enforcing the practice, and getting all tensed up, you know, and certainly then practicing maybe with excessive effort. And this straining you know, may happen outside of retreat, but may also happen during an intensive meditation retreat. 
Now, some possible causes for straining might be that certain one is setting standards for oneself. I should by now. The retreat is coming to a close. Only one week remains, and by now I should have gained such and such a level in my practice. And so, setting standards might certainly cause contribute to the straining. Ambition might also contributed. Certain expectations, a lot of self or ego that might be involved, and then excessive effort. So lack of certain composure is certainly for sure not certainly useful. Now, the Pali term for composure is what? Does any one of you know? No? So, Sanditana. And it is a word that does not get frequently used in the text. And when checking the Pali text, the Pali text societies, the Pali English dictionary, then there are very few entries there. Now, a related a term is certain of the verb santiti, which should consist of two parts, san and tititi, and tititi means basically to stand. And so there's several meanings certainly here for the term santiti. The first one being to stand or stand still or to remain to continue. A second interpretation of the verb would be to be established, to be put into order. But this doesn't really concern us. And then the third meaning is of more relevance, namely to stick to, to be fixed or settled, to be composed. And so uh, then uh, number four is to restrain oneself, and number five is to wait for or to wait on someone. Now, the noun santitana then has been translated as composure. The venerable Sadhupandita of Phatna Burma also recommends retention of composure. And certainly he furthermore proposes the term firmness. Now this certain composure then in the path of Futna discrimination, the Padisamita monk, in paragraph 306 and the following paragraphs, then is being mentioned in the context of composure towards the 15 essentials of life, or 15 essentials of being. Now, some of the really essential events in a human existence are what? Well, without taking birth, you wouldn't be here. So birth must be essential. And then, correctly followed, death. And then also the well, and then along the same line, or maybe two, so birth, death, and then other major events in the life of a human being are? 
a sickness, yes, indeed. And Satnerlin, do we all grow younger and younger by the day? <laughs> so, old Satner age, and Satnerlin, there are events when, let's say, a relative or so passes away, or we lose some precious item, then sorrow may be there, lamentation may be there, despair may be there. And suddenly, there are things such relating related to ordinary physical and mental formations, things such as the arising of an object, the occurrence of an object, and suddenly also the dissolution of an object. And there are other aspects, but we're not going to go into those. So, um, we can ask ourselves, do we, or in the past, have we always remained, or have we always retained composure with regard to these major events in our human existence? And so, I suppose in some cases maybe yes, in some cases not. Now, The Venerable Jnana Rama, a Sri Lankan meditation master and certain scholar who passed away maybe about five, seven years ago, and who also promoted the Mahasi school of Vipassana meditation in Sri Lanka, he defines composure as certain follows. He says composure is or implies the continuity of knowledge or the occurrence of a series of knowledges as an unbroken process. And maybe to add that the mind or the meditator remains totally composed about what is going on. So even though um, one you know, might be experiencing several you know, or going through several inside knowledges in a relatively you know, quick you know, succession, yet you know, the mind is certainly not certainly necessarily touched. And to give you an illustration you know, related to your own meditation practice. So this would be as if you were to traverse the inside knowledges that you've experienced so far in this retreat in fast forward, let's say, in five minutes. And so at first, certainly it's maybe you know, quite pleasant, some calmness is there, and then the hindrances all of a sudden you know, you know, you know, attack you or assault you and then a number of wholesome mental states are there. You're pleased again, and then again some difficult mental states come, and then everything keeps changing, and then again the hindrances are back, etc., etc. And so it would be as if one gets or as if you know, riding on a roller coaster up and down, uh, back and forth, and nonetheless retaining composure. Now, in the text, this composure is certainly being mentioned in 
particular with regard certainly, to you know, the hindrances. And but before going into you know, this, let me you know, uh, well help you know, the understanding with an, a made-up you know, illustration. And certainly, you know, Chris, our you know, retreat manager here, has, if I'm not mistaken, managed retreats already for several years. How many years? Five, six, seven, seven years already. And certainly, so. Chris, tell me if I'm wrong. When you started being a retreat manager and you had to deal with all you know, these many difficulties that come up during a retreat, like plumbing problems, <laughs> and then dissatisfied meditators, and then meditators who fall sick, and meditators who need this, who need that, and then there may be problems around the food, someone's uh, you know, food without, uh, you know, what is this? Uh, what was that one thing you think? The, uh, I forgot. So, especially, <laughs> you no know, food without so the one item. It's very uh, gluten. There we go. Gluten-free food that we don't have in Nepal. <laughs> this distinction is not being made there at all. <laughs> and so, anyways, around here, some. And, you know, you know, someone, so, you know, some yogis insist on gluten-free you know, food, which makes life much more difficult for the cook. And so, then others, however, are okay with gluten. And so, you know, so you know, there's so many issues. And then you know, having to you know, deal you know, with, you know, let's say, the proprietor of the retreat center. So it's definitely not an easy task. Now, let us ask you know, Chris for her experience. When you, when you were the you know, retreat manager the first time, did you do it with composure or not? <laughs> you don't think so. But now, you know, seven years down the road, and with seven retreats, this being the seventh retreat, have you gained some composure? And based on, you know, years and years... <laughs> So, with years and years of uh, managing retreats, and not just one retreat per year, it's correct, no? Several retreats a year. Yeah, so, now Chris's experience yeah, as a retreat manager you know, are quite certain substantial, and I think she knows, okay, oh well, yeah, yeah, she already knows at the beginning of a retreat what to expect, <laughs> and, <laughs> and so it's, uh, yeah, now right away from the beginning, she's uh, you know, much more nonchalant about the whole thing, yeah, much more and easy going, and she knows already how to deal with the different difficulties, and so no big deal. So we can say, Chris, by now, is managing retreats with a great degree of composure. And so that then makes it easier for her as well as everyone else. Now, in the course of the meditation practice, as a meditator, we are 
are like a person on a roller coaster. So we'll be on occasion. Our practice will take us to tremendous heights, and then we will feel exhilarated. We think we will have experiences and think this is really la crème de la crème. So it couldn't get any better. And at other times we sit there and then we're close to tears and even shedding tears. So, uh, or uh, sometimes also there are all these uh, terrible uh, physical uh, pains and aches that occur and cramps and whatnot. And so, you know, the practice at times can be quite challenging. So, with little retreat experience as a meditator, will we have uh, much composure? At first, not. But with more retreat experience, let's say we've done several retreats, several longer retreats, and we've gone through the same stages, the same difficulties, also same heights or similar heights, we are already much more familiar with the whole thing. We know what to expect. And with this, then we manage to maintain or retain an attitude of composure. And so in particular towards the hindrances, but also other difficulties, sorry. Now, one of our meditators from Lumbini has certain described this, or one particular aspect of the knowledge of equanimity about certain formations as emotional stability. And that might actually very nicely fit in this certain context. Another meditator has said she felt very strong and stable. And when we take a look at certain, for instance, this Buddha statue, and we look at uh, you know, the face, then you know, there, you know, we might interpret the facial expression as certain, partly re- you know, reflecting a sense of composure. Oftentimes, people interpret interpret the face, you know, the Buddha's facial expression, to you know, display certain inner peace. That yes, uh, but composure is also part of it. Composure towards the ups and downs downs of uh, life. Now, the Venerable Sadhu Pandita has certainly explained what Satya is Satya meant by composure, by saying that in the context of the Vipassana practice, one will observe the various Satya formations, such as Satya, the hindrances, and Satya then realize, okay, each and every one of them is an unwholesome mental state. I don't certainly want 
want to you know, keep you know, this certain you know, unnecessarily and certain you know, then you know, based on you know, the you know, reflection and you know, then or, or having reflected like this the person you know, will you know, then um, you know, trying to let go of you know, the you know, hind the you know, one particular hindrance or the whole set of hindrances and certainly then you know, maintain or retain composure um, with regard to those certain hindrances and certainly see when dealing with the hindrances Sapna, during the uh, higher stages of the Vipassana practice, at first one uh, will uh, deal with them, let's say, with gritted teeth and Sapna, will uh, strain a lot and try to overcome them. But uh, when encountering the hindrances uh, several times uh, in uh, the course of one's Sapna practice, then gradually one gets more and more familiar with them. One will know what works and what doesn't work and suddenly with this thing composure is suddenly there so that's how composure sanpitana comes suddenly into uh, our uh, practice the same thing uh, the venerable side uh, explains holds true uh, for uh, the jhana uh, practice and suddenly uh, the different uh, jhana uh, factors so there too a certain degree of you know, reflection and certain composure is certain uh, or is at work and now we will not have you know, the time you know, to go into all the many you know, details that are connected with you know, the knowledge of equanimity and you know, many of those details are highly you know, fascinating but you know, this you will have to you know, discover those you know, for yourselves now one major aspect of you know, equanimity about formations is or a factor that contributes to, you know, to Towards equanimity bond formations is, and as Satna Marcia has mentioned already in an earlier talk, is you know, the aspect of uh, um, well, no self, anatta, and so. In other words, voidness. Voidness in a fourfold manner, namely realizing there is no myself, there is nothing belonging to myself, there is no another, another self, and certainly there's nothing belonging to another self. And so this aspect, then avoidness, does become quite certain and predominant for meditators, and it prepares certain the ground for other new things. Now, some of the major stations during this particular phase in one's practice are as certain follows. Namely, a meditator will see formations again and again, or discern formations again and again in the light of impermanence, anicca, in the light of dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, and in the light of uh, absence of a self anatta and certainly since this certain still um, this understanding still has to you know, deepen and mature you know, further now having done this and also having abandoned 
terror and delight, or to put it differently, fear and delight, or to put it again differently, having transcended pairs of opposites, such as happiness and unhappiness, or you know, opposites certainness, such as mm, maybe misery and delight, and or, or let's say you know, delight and suddenly then um, non non delight or disenchantment, or you know, um, in a general sense unwholesome mental states versus wholesome mental states, etc., etc. There are plenty of you know, such pairs of you know, opposites. And suddenly then, furthermore, having become equanimous or neutral in the investigation of formations. Now, what does this mean? By the time you reach this particular phase in lamentation practice, you will have observed the whole range of physical and mental formations, starting with the rising and falling open of the abdomen. Now, probably not just 1,000 times, but many thousands of footnote times, maybe a hundred thousand of footnote times. And so, so just like um, uh, Chris as a retreat manager, having faced uh, similar problems many times, has become, mm, or has developed a certain composure, so too meditators you know, you know, develop more and more composure, as well as neutrality. Namely, they've seen it all. And suddenly with this, the investigation becomes pretty, mm, you know, pretty balance pretty neutral. So even though some fascinating object may arise, the mind does not get excited anymore. Even though, let's say, some object that earlier on would certainly cause a collapse in your practice certainly arises, nonetheless the, re the mind remains pretty neutral. So having then gone beyond or having discerned formations in the light of the three characteristics, having abandoned pairs of opposites and become neutral or equanimous, then sooner or later one might suddenly find the gateway to liberation. Now, the six qualities are being attributed to the knowledge of equanimity bond, certain formations, as mentioned by the Venerable Hasi Sayadaw of Burma, and those qualities are very useful. The very first one being an absence of fear and certain delight. The second one being pain and pleasure are seen with equanimity. The third one is the meditation usually carries on automatically and without any effort. Maybe just to elaborate on this point a little bit. So if earlier on in one's practice one had to put in a great amount of effort, then when reaching this particular phase, the energy comes naturally, energy is just naturally um, uh, 
of you know, being set free, and certainly that then means you know, that certainly one can easily you know, make you know, the necessary effort. And the state of equanimity is said to last for a long time or longer and longer periods of time. So if normally a meditator would just sit for an hour or maybe an hour and a half or so, then sooner or later one finds that one can practice for much longer. Is that a conscious knowing? No, 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 no. This happens naturally. Okay. Uh, no, it's just you know, that's uh, an, an object that is under observation will appear uh, in you know, the light of impermanence or you know, in the light of uh, you know, unsatisfactoriness, unsatisfactoriness or absence of a self. But it's not an actual thinking about it. No, 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 no. And so so one could incline the mind a little bit towards this. Um, now, furthermore, as certain one, one certain meditation is lasting longer, there's another interesting development taking place, namely that certain one's meditation is becoming more and more you know, refined. Everything is becoming more and more refined. The objects of observation become more refined, as well as the um, observing and certain knowing mind, to an to a degree that is uh, uh, unthought of by a you know, beginning meditator. So when you start out with your meditation practice, you have no clue whatsoever how refined you know, things certainly might get certainly later on in your practice. And so, um, when beginning meditators don't realize how coarse you know, the objects are you know, that they are you know, that they have to deal with and they also don't realize how coarse the mind is you know, that certain, uh, they are you know, using now the sixth certain quality is certain that of you know, one's meditation being fixed and steady and the mind recoils and certain the mind does not wander to any other objects and um, the mind recoiling means that it gets less and less interested in external formations. And, so, and the last part, the mind does not wander to any other objects. Well, that is somewhat certainly similar, even if one were to send the mind out, even if one were to tempt the mind with, let's say, some sense-desire inducing object, yet the mind will just briefly go there and immediately return. It just doesn't take the interest in it anymore. And now, a few more points that certainly might be worth explaining are that before reaching this or in approaching this knowledge of equanimity, a meditator is likely to experience what might be called the yo-yo effect. So one's practice will be fluctuating, might be going up and then down again and up again and down again, etc. 
and Satnavad might at first be somewhat disconcerting to a meditator who is not understanding what is Satna happening. However, then Satna yo yo effect over time will gradually get Satna less and less Satna pronounced. Now, certain mental qualities or mental factors will become quite certain predominant and certain some and certain those basically have already been mentioned in previous Dhamma talks such as the enlightenment factors consisting of the enlightenment factor of mindfulness of investigation of states and then of effort of joy, tranquility, concentration, and certain equanimity. Maybe just one more uh, item. When the practice becomes pretty refined, then quite naturally mental or, or even quite natural physical formations will become less and less obvious, less and less discernible, and uh, to the same extent, mental objects become more pronounced. So it's the mental formations that move to the foreground of a meditator's sudden observation. And sudden when this happens, then we can say that Chitta Nupasana, namely mindful contemplation of the mind, is certainly the predominant form of meditation. Now, all sorts of difficulties might occur in a meditator who is trying to establish this equanimity about certain formations and certainness. I'll try to address just a few of those. There are many points that could be mentioned. Now, one major point comes in the form of expectations. Expectations, anticipation, hopes, desires, and goals for setting goals for one's practice. Some people are very goal-oriented and then in, let's say, the world of business, we have a very precise, clear-cut timetable. So by three months, let's say, phase A of a project needs to be accomplished and by six months, the project needs to be entirely completed. This kind of time planning will work for your meditation practice or not? Uh, Glenn, no. <laughs> you're shaking your head. <laughs> this will not work at all. And so, uh, if you were to do this kind of thing, then it would actually make your practice more and difficult. So, in this context, there's also time pressure. So, if let's say as the end of the retreat is coming up, then one might start counting the days, and with one with every day less, the pressure on the meditators suddenly increases exponentially. And suddenly, accordingly, meditators get more and more tensed up and lose suddenly their composure more and more. So, 
superficial mindfulness will not work. What we read, what we do need is you know, continuous mindfulness and penetrative mindfulness, and really from moment to moment. And I mean not just you know, one, you know, one observation, one finding within you know, one minute, but rather many moments of observation and uh, knowledge within you know, one minute, and you know, even within one single rising movement, one single you know, falling movement of you know, the abdomen. So things, uh, you know, our, you know, the quality of our mindfulness you know, has to improve more and uh, more. And now, as we have discussed already in the past, an imbalance of the controlling faculties might make it difficult for a meditator to move ahead. The same thing might also happen when there's an imbalance with regard to the two pairs or two groups of enlightenment factors. So the more active enlightenment factors or activating enlightenment factors such as investigation of states and then effort and joy on the one hand side and then on the other hand the calming new factors such as tranquility concentration and equanimity now sometimes what happens is a meditator's equanimity overall equanimity is still relatively weak and certainly so the person easily reacts certainly let's say to external or internal disturbances and with this thing the practice temporarily collapses so one might suddenly get upset that suddenly maybe the toilet in one's bathroom is not working or one might get upset with the food or whatever it might or maybe the the squeaking floorboards different things for different people and then another common difficulty is that since a number of wholesome mental states arise, one might get attached to those wholesome and pleasant mental states. And that will cause a stagnation in one's practice. Also, if there's a strong sense of self, then this will interfere with one's meditation. Keeping one's posture still or keeping one's body still will help. Longer sittings might also help, but they do need to be balanced with some amount of walking meditation. Also, by this time in one's practice, one doesn't want to get caught up anymore in an object. So let's say if some unpleasant memory from the past comes up and maybe some family issue or whatever it might be, then the mind in the past has been quite obsessive about it, then at this point one will want to let go of it as quickly as possible. So if the mind is hitched, is getting stuck in some object, then then this might interfere with one's practice. Now,
overall, it might be fair to say that the continuity of mindfulness and certain also strengthening of equanimity are you know, the main you know, points you know, that certain will you know, then contribute certain to a further deepening of you know, one's practice. So, with mm, with a fair amount of neutrality of mind. Um, as well as certain composure, retention of composure, uh, in accordance with uh, you know, the Visuddhimagga you know, definition, a meditator is likely you know, to uh, move ahead. Now, somewhat related and somewhat helpful you know, for a meditator's practice is certain, you know, the quality of patience. And since in the meditation practice all sorts of difficulties suddenly come up, patience might then be helpful. Now, for a better understanding, the Dhamma Sangani has defined Kanti patience as forbearance, as endurance, as not being, tr- how do you say, truculent? Truculent? Truculent. And uh, being coherent in speech and being good, sudden tempered. Another way of uh, expressing uh, this would be an uh, absence of uh, intolerance, ability to forgive, and uh, endure absence of ferocity and absence of bluntness. The Jataka, uh, Volume 3, uh, Section 40, uh, speaks of a psychological ability in a person not to become angered when one is reviled, beaten, and slandered by others. Now, the definition as definition of patience as given in the commentary to the Charya Pitaka is worth noting. Namely, there it says that patience has the characteristic of acceptance and its function is to endure the desirable as well as the undesirable. And its manifestation is certain as tolerance or non-opposition. And seeing things as they really are and uh, is its proximate cause. So, accepting a situation for what it is rather than fighting uh, a particular situation. And obviously in our meditation practice, pleasant experiences come up, unpleasant experiences, desirable, undesirable objects come up, and in all cases we then try to accept and be patient. Now, the venerable 
Maoist side of Burma is certainly saying that, or is writing in you know, the book Brahma you know, on on the Brahma Viharas, that certain patience is basically that mental factor that is contrary you know, to you know, the mental factor of anger. And certain, so in other words, certain patience comes under you know, the heading of ardor, certain absence of hatred or uh, ill will, and loving kindness also, and gentleness and friendliness mm, come. The amity, all of those come under adult non-hatred. And interestingly enough, the characteristic of, or one of the characteristics of non-hatred is non-opposing, and the other one being lack of ferocity. Its function is to remove annoyance or to remove fever, and its manifestation is as agreeableness. And then non-hatred comprises positive qualities such as loving-kindness, gentleness, etc. And Vener- the Venerable Sado is certainly saying uh, that uh, you know, well, patience describes this ability to endure any kind of provocation and to remain calm without anger and doing any un- anything unwholesome. Whereas loving kindness is certainly somewhat more comprehensive and certainly one is wishing for the welfare and happiness of others. Now, we have to make a dis- or, or it might be helpful you know, for a better understanding of patience kanti to know that patience gets used in different contexts. So, you know, for instance, you know, when you know, patience is spoken of as a parami, as one of the perfections, then it means practicing forbearance towards the manifold failings of human beings, or one's fellow human beings. And the Charya Pitak, or the commentator, Dhammapada, then speaks to quite some extent on different ways with regard to patients or different reflections in the connection with patients. And it's always with regard to other human beings. So, obviously, we do not live in a a world where everyone is perfect, and even though we may be thinking that I myself, I'm perfect, yet everyone else is imperfect, but this is not realistic. And so, just like others are imperfect, we are also imperfect in our conduct and mental states. 
and uh, maybe the only uh, perfect uh, being in or one of uh, one of the uh, of very few perfect uh, beings is uh, the Buddha. Find out, is there that notion in Buddhism uh, that we find in other traditions of trying to put yourself in the place of the other person in order to understand why they are behaving the way? Yeah, yeah, very, yeah, very much so. And so yeah, there's also, yeah, well, there's the, in the context of you know, virtue, yeah, there's this certain standard of. Uh, um, well, putting oneself in the shoes of another person before uh, you know, actually um, you know harming another person. So and then reflecting, would I want to you know, be uh, you know, let's say beaten? If then the answer to this is no, I don't want to be beaten. This is painful, and uh, you know, so too just like I don't want to be you know, you know, beaten, so others will you know, or another person will also not you know, like it. And so there is even uh, a Dhammapada verse in which uh, this taking oneself as a standard um, or as a yardstick is uh, being mentioned. uh, Now, one of the uh, occurrences of uh, patience in the text is in connection with regard to others' speech. Now, is there anyone among you who has gone through life without having ever uh, been uh, criticized? Is there or is there not? absolute silence. So, I suppose there's none. And uh, is uh, there anyone among you who has always been talked to only in friendly terms? Again, a no. And so, in the course of human existence, we're likely to suffer various kinds of speech. And the Buddha has expressed this really nicely. He says, and I'm quoting from you know, the 21st uh, Sutta of the Majjhima paragraph 11. There it says, because, uh, because Bhikkhunis and lay meditators, there are these five courses of speech that others may use when they address you. Their speech may be timely, or untimely. So if it's timely, it's great, but it has surely happened to you that when you're under total stress, someone comes and uh, comes with another, uh, you know, special and certain absolute ness or request that needs certain instant uh, fulfillment. And then um, their speech may be true or untrue, gentle or harsh, connected with good or with harm, spoken with a mind of loving-kindness, or spoken with inner hate. And then, the and, and the Buddha goes on, herein you should train thus, our minds will remain 
unaffected, and we shall utter no evil words. We shall abide compassionate for their welfare with a mind of loving kindness without inner hate. We shall abide pervading that person with a mind imbued with loving kindness and starting with him or her. We shall abide pervading the all-encompassing world with a mind imbued with loving kindness, um, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill will. That is how you should train because bikunis and lay meditators. Now, please notice in this our minds will remain unaffected. The term unaffected is a reference to what? Yeah, there you go, equanimity, that's it. And so, then not retaliating, not so, uh, uh, you know, you know, retaliating with abusive speech if one got verbally abused. This is your aspect of patience plus the loving kindness, uh, adding or, or giving loving kindness as an uh, additional goodie. Now, patience is required everywhere. It is certainly required in Samatha meditation. It is required in Vipassana meditation, in life in general. And with regard certainly to meditation practice, the Burmese have a saying. They have a saying which goes as follows. Which means only if one, or it means patience leads to Nibbana, literally translated, only if one is patient will one reach Nibbana. Now, the Visuddhimagga, the path of Fatna purification, in its instructions on loving kindness, Satna meditation, during the preliminary explanations or instructions, mentions or suggests that Satna one, first of all, should Satna see the danger in hate and then also see the advantage in patience, such as. That if one were to act out of hatred, then in the worst case one might kill another human being. On the other hand, advantages of patience are that this is certainly the best moral practice, and then that this can be a strength, it can be a tremendous strength to the person who possesses patience. Now, when we think of for life in general, then we are likely to come across all sorts of difficult social situations, and sometimes 
a situation may seem like uh, like uh, you know, almost uh, uh, unsolvable and or cannot be resolved in any way and yet if we assume or adopt a different attitude, then the whole thing may change immediately. So if you look at some problem that, or some social friction that has arisen in a community, and you look at it as if 250 years would have already passed by between the event and you're looking at it, then that event may seem pretty insignificant. So if you look back from 250 years from now onwards, then you will probably just smile about this so-called problem. Now, from an if we come from a Dhamma perspective, ultimately speaking, there is no reason whatsoever to get angry with another person or with a particular situation. And the Venerable Sadhu Pandita, with regard to patience, has offered the following saying. He goes, let it be such that one shall have patience with others, not others shall have patience with oneself. Now, um, Acharya Dhammapada, the common, one of the commentators who has you know, written on you know, the you know, perfections, the paramis, you know, has many different you know, reflections on you know, patience and you know, just one to share you know, with you, know, you. namely, when another person is suddenly, let's say, giving you a hard time verbally, physically, in whatever way it might be, even in a non-verbal way, then you could consider that person as a benefactor. So why is your aggressor your benefactor? There you go. Because he gives you an opera, he or she gives you an opportunity to practice patience. And in the end, you could even be grateful to that person. Now, let me conclude today's Satya Dhamma talk by you know, wishing may you know, these qualities of neutrality, especially composure, and you know, also you know, patience with regard to other human beings, but as well as difficult certain you know, experiences in the meditation practice itself, may you know, these qualities contribute, you know, to, or may you apply these qualities to your meditation practice, to the ups and downs in the practice, and may they help you to see through whatever comes up, and ultimately may they help you to gain balance of mind, a strong mind, emotionally strong mind, and then may this be the ground for the entering through the 
gateway to uh, liber gateway of fortunate liberation resulting in the experience or realization of the peace of Nibbana. May this happen during this very retreat here in Taos. And this is it for it now. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.